Hebrews chapter 8, and beginning in verse 6. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities." And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Write its truths on our hearts as only you can. In this be glorified. Show us Christ in all his dazzling beauty. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. Today we're going to focus on the 12th verse in our passage, which reads, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. It's very possible to look at that text before us today and assume, well, everyone gets this. Everyone gets this. I get it. We're forgiven. That's nice. Can we get to some good stuff now, to the big stuff? Well, I'm a pastor, not a traveling preacher, and I love the fact that that's the case. I get to walk with people in the peaks and in the valleys, in the good times and the hard times, uh, in the trenches together. We walk, but never alone. We never walk alone. I love that. And uh, there's times when I come alongside a brother and say, here's a verse that I believe will encourage you. For a sister, I might come and say, remember in the dark what he showed you in the light. We all go through things. And here's what I know. Conscience issues, what happens between our ears, have to be resolved if we're going to live and enjoy this Christian life. There's a battle on for our minds. And we must know the forgiveness of sins or else we're not equipped for the fight. There's a reason why in the armor of God that's listed in Ephesians chapter 6, it includes in the listing of the uh, things that are given to us in that armor, the helmet of salvation covering the head and the breastplate of righteousness that covers the heart. Helmet of salvation. We've got to know in our heads that we're saved. We need to understand salvation. We need to understand the breastplate of righteousness is the fact that God gives us righteousness as a gift. That's our standing before God. We need to know it. And forgiveness is an essential component of that. Reference is made to it in the Apostles' Creed. You remember, it reads, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. In the Nicene Creed, we believe in the forgiveness of sins. There's a reason why these words are part of what would be essential Christian doctrine. Forgiveness is an essential component in salvation. Hear this from Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Here's what I want to say today. The gospel is for Christians too. Now, when I say that, you think, well, that's kind of obvious. That's, uh, well, I kind of knew that. I'm going to ask you, do you know that? I walk with Christians. I walk with people, and oftentimes they are not sure of that. 
And it's evident around uh, the times when they're really sick, when they're often in a very compromised position physically, and people talk from the heart at those moments. And thankfully, there are many times when people say, this is just a, a wonderful opportunity to praise and glorify God. I know that if I were to die, though I don't want to die, if I did, I know I'll be right with the Lord. But at other times, someone not grounded in the gospel says things like, do you think I've done enough? And there, we really need to understand the gospel. The gospel is not about what you have done, but what he has done, plus nothing. That is the gospel. The gospel is not you and your performance. The gospel is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. So the gospel is for Christians too. The gospel, I know it's for everybody, and we share the gospel with all that we can. We are promiscuous in the right sense of that word with the gospel. We just tell it like it is to everybody who will listen and many people who don't. We want them to know the gospel. We want them to hear the good news. We take the gospel to every creature. The gospel's for everybody. But you'll be amazed at how the enemy of our soul seeks to obscure that gospel once someone is actually inside the kingdom, once they've embraced Jesus. It might surprise you to hear this, but the enemy of our souls seeks to undermine the gospel by the power of something called witchcraft. You ever heard of that? This time of year, it's what we hear about a lot. Witches and warlocks and gremlins and goblins and the dark side. And the Bible says, have nothing to do with the works of darkness, but rather expose them. I'm going to expose witchcraft today. Let's go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And it's in a book where you might not think that's where we're going to read about witchcraft. In fact, I don't remember reading about witchcraft in Galatians. Well, actually, it's listed as one of the works of the flesh. Some translations may read sorcery, others witchcraft. And so it's the work of sinful man to try to control others, manipulate others. That's really what is in view when we're talking about witchcraft. It seeks to dominate. It seeks to use its power of assertion to dominate and subjugate. But in Galatians chapter 3, we're going to read some familiar words. Verse 1, Paul writes... O foolish Galatians. One paraphrase, not a very good translation, but a paraphrase reads, O Galatian idiots. <laughs> o foolish Galatians. Who has, look at this next word, bewitched you. You ever read that word and wondered what is all that about? The original word refers to bringing someone under the evil eye. It refers to a power at work. You've come under a power that is not the power of the Holy Spirit. You've been bewitched. An evil eye has operated inside the church. Though you've understood the gospel, you're drifting away from it and you're under the power of witchcraft. That's literally what is in view. Who's done it? Who has bewitched you? Brought you under their spell? Who's brought you under their spell? Yes, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me stop there for a moment. Again, that original word refers to the evil eye. And what it does, this power at work in the church, obscures the cross. You've been bewitched, and what happened? You understood the cross, you understood before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, what's interesting to me is that we're reading a letter that was sent to the churches of Galatia, a region in the ancient world. And I would surmise that most people receiving that letter were not present when Jesus was crucified many, many miles in a different direction in Jerusalem. So how could Paul write, hey, before your eyes, Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Here's what I understand. Whenever the true gospel is preached, whenever the cross is truly preached, the Holy Spirit erects the cross 
in the sight of the people. Not with physical eyes, but spiritual eyes. People see the cross. And many are offended by it. Others, the cold, embrace it. But everyone who hears the gospel, the Holy Spirit portrays Christ. It's a supernatural event whenever the gospel is taught, preached, written and read. It's a supernatural thing and we should never get bored of it. Never, ever, ever, ever get bored with the gospel. In heaven you won't be allowed to. You'll be seeing things and vistas and layers of the gospel that you think, well, I've, I got that, I got... No, and then you'll be aghast. And then moments later you'll be more aghast as God unveils more and more of the power of that gospel in eternity for us. Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You saw the cross, he was portrayed publicly as crucified. How is that possible? By the preaching of God's word. But something's happened. You once saw the cross clearly, but now something's happened. It's obscured from view. Once you could see it, but now you no longer do. And the enemy at work is witchcraft. Witchcraft is not merely potions and sayings and the, the things that take place in a witch's coven. Witchcraft can take place in the church when the church loses sight of the gospel. The cross is no longer clear. It's blurry. The cross, the cross isn't preached. Many sermons you'll hear in this land today, there'll be no mention of Jesus in a Christian service. The cross, the resurrection of Christ. You think you're kidding. No, it, people tell me. They've been out there. It's hard to find the gospel in a sermon. I want to make it hard to go to hell from King's Church. People leave the service, maybe before the preaching. At least they get the gospel track before they leave in the bulletin. They're getting the gospel. We want to make it hard to go to hell from King's Church. Amen. So how did this occur? How come they can't see the worth and value of the cross anymore? Well, a power has been at work. And this obscuring power brings something like a cloud in front of the cross. Though the cross has been erected by the power of the Holy Spirit, this power of witchcraft brings a cloud so that people can no longer see the cross as they once did. And they now become embroiled in, embroiled in a works-based righteousness. In fact, that's what we read as we continue to read in Galatians 3. They're under the spell. They're not seeing the Christ of the crucifixion as they once did. And so Paul asks the question, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law, things you do, or by hearing with faith? What's the answer? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There it is. The cross, rightly understood, brings us to the, the matter of justification and that takes place through the righteousness of Christ being counted to us by faith. Know then that those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the Gentiles by faith preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the families of the earth, all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. There it is. The gospel in plain view. But witchcraft obscures that plain view. How did this obscuring of the cross affect these Galatian Christians? They're now thinking, well, I need Jesus, but I also need this. I also need to do this. I also need this in place to be saved. I want to ask you today, ladies and gentlemen, ask yourself this question. Do I, do you, do you see the cross clearly? Or has it become something of a blur? Has the dark cloud of witchcraft invaded 
your space so you can't see what you once saw. You see, we come to Christ and the weight comes off. Oh, I'm forgiven, but now we're in the Christian life. Unless we're constantly exposing our hearts and minds to the gospel, we, by default, come up with a works-based righteousness. I'm in the kingdom by grace, but I, now I have to maintain this thing by my works. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the gospel. That is the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is for Christians as well as non-Christians. Once we no longer see the cross invaded by the power of witchcraft, demonic doctrines come in. And works-based righteousness is one of those demonic doctrines. And that's what our culture believes that's what we're all about in our service. Oh, you go to church, you're one of these goody two-shoes kind of people, you just want to think you're better than everyone else. And if they ever came to a Bible preaching church, they would not hear it, but that's what they hear and that's what they think we're talking about and proclaiming in our service. No. The message is, we are not saved by anything we do, but by what He has done. It's all Him. We rejoice in Him. We glorify Him. We thank God for the gospel, which is not a gospel of self-esteem. A gospel of I am now looking better as each week goes by. No, I'm more and more conscious of my sin and more and more in love with my Savior, seeing the bigness of my salvation. Amen. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Anything else is a false gospel. And we should be very clear. It's important where you and I go to church. I know you're coming here. I'm preaching to the choir. But you can go many places and some places you think, well, I'll get the gospel there. And you go there and you don't hear it. How wonderful the gospel is. And if it's not valued, something else will be. Moralism. Everyone has to act the same way I do. They have to vote the same way I do. They have to school their children the same way I do. Or else they're outside the kingdom. No, you're in by grace, through faith alone. It's good to do the right things. It's good to believe right things. But you can't stay in the kingdom by your righteousness in any way at all. All our righteousness is as filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. So filthy is that rags that uh, scholars and translators are scared to translate it as it rightly is. It's a word that really does mean filthy rags. I won't elaborate, but that's the case. And that's very hard for the religious mind to grasp. You see, the religious mind could grasp, well are bad stuff. That's filthy before God. But God says your best stuff is filthy before God. It's always tinged with self-righteousness. It's always got a, a measure of sin in it. It's always never, it never is the fact that we, you and I have done anything 100% for the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the problem. The standard is the glory of God. Did you make coffee today for the glory of God? Did you get up for the glory of God? Did you drive for the glory of God? Do you sit there for the glory of God? Everything should be done for the glory of God. And if it's not, it's coming short of the standard. That's why every day of our life, it's God's grace and mercy that we're not pulverized and vaporized by God's justice. What has God done for me lately? He's holding your brain cells together as you defy Him. In Him we live and move and have our being. We can't even move without God according to God's Word. So I want to ask you, do you see it? Do you see the cross? Or has the enemy obscured your view? Moralism, legalism, the idea that we can base our standing with God on our works and performance. Yeah, I came in by grace, but I maintain it by what I do. Self-righteousness is all-pervasive in our society and inside the professing church. There's an emphasis on human achievement. I got in by grace, but I've got to keep this thing going by my works. Moralism says, I'm good. And the message is, be good. Be a Daniel. Be like the three in the fire in the book of Daniel. Your shack, my shack, and a bungalow. I mean, uh, <laughs> may have got that wrong. 
<laughs> Help him, Jesus. He lost the anointing again. There it is. But many outside the walls of our church think the message of Christianity is there's a way to have self-improvement. You can do better. No, the Bible is a rescue plan. And if we don't grasp that, we miss the very heart of the Christian faith. And you need that rescue. I need that rescue on your best days as well as your worst. If we don't grasp that, we'll lead defeated lives. And many even give up on the Christian faith altogether. They think, I'm tied up in knots. I'm trying this. I've, I'm in the kingdom, but now I've got to have this Bible reading program. And if I don't do that, now it's a good thing to do. But if you base your standing before God on, I'm reading this today. Oh, God's now pleased with me. I'm praying today. Oh, God's now pleased with me. No, God's pleased with you because of the finished work of Jesus, not what anything you and I get to finish. Rod Rosenblatt addresses this in an article and he refers to Christians as sad alumni. Sad alumni. They're at the Christian university in the realm of life and they're sad because they haven't heard the gospel in a while. Let's allow him to explain. When he speaks of sad alumni, he says, I mean the hundreds whose acquaintance with the Christian church was often one in which they were helped to move from unbelief or from rank moralism into professing faith in Jesus Christ. They heard the preaching of God's word and then heard the announcement of Christ's work on their behalf on the cross. Jesus as the God-man who met the law's demands for them and died for their sin died to save them, died to give them eternal life. And they came to believe that the cross of Christ was their salvation. But something happened after that, something that broke them. And in many cases, I think what happened is nameable. It has to do with what our first president at Christ College Irvin called law, gospel, law. It's that third point that, if executed badly, results in a lot of the sad alumni of Christianity. If Reformation folk execute this badly, the sensitive Christian believer can be driven to a slavery as bad as any slavery done by a totalitarian dictator. If the Ten Commandments were not impossible enough, the preaching of Christian behavior, of Christian ethics, of Christian living can drive a professing Christian into despairing unbelief. Not happy unbelief, tragic, despairing, sad unbelief. End of quote. I believe he's right. Let me ask you, finish this sentence. God is pleased with me because, in your own mind, finish that sentence what would you uh, what would your words be as you insert them to the end of that sentence god is pleased with me because let me say this if you finish that sentence with any reference to what you've done you've missed the point of the christian faith god is pleased with you because of jesus christ alone what he did on your behalf that's what gives you right standing with him and his pleasure he's pleased with your with his son and you are in his son and all is at peace and well the right answer is not found in your performance religious performance or otherwise that's a staircase that never takes you anywhere it leaves you in utter frustration the right answer God is pleased with me because of Christ and Christ alone. He's pleased with me because of Christ, who he is and what he's done. Christ is my righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. He's made unto us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. The blurring of the cross results in a false view of ourselves. I'm not that bad. Many of you hear our sermons... I'm sure because I've heard some of the feedback. Oh, it's just, just so dark. Well, what am I doing? I'm just reading the scripture that tells us our condition before a holy God. No, I want a pep talk. I want to hear something good about myself. Good. Okay. It's good for you to know that you're not pleasing to him by what you've done. I need a more positive message. 
You are positively not good before God. We don't grasp that. Oh, I'm not that bad. No, you're, you're actually worse than you think. So am I. Are you just talking down to us? No, I'm saying I'm in this like we all are. We're all in the deep weeds. We need a Savior. That's the message of the Bible. Amen. If grace is not amazing to you, it'll be mundane, almost boring. You wouldn't have the courage to write a hymn, Boring Grace. You'd never say it out loud, but that's the condition of your heart and there should be an alert going off. Warning, 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 witchcraft at work. Warning, warning, warning. The cross has been obscured. What a right view of the cross does is it allows us to see sin as bad and as hideous and as treasonous as it is and then find our relief looking away from ourselves to the perfect Savior. As John the Baptist declared, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the message. Not look within and find yourself. Let's go to 1 Timothy, on to the right in our Bibles. Paul was one who was very aware of his guilt and very grateful for his salvation. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Look at that. Paul was able, because he understood the gospel, to look at his own sin right in the face and call it like it is, tell it like it is. He didn't say, look, I was this really, really religious person. I just missed it by a little bit. I just kind of didn't quite understand Jesus was the Messiah, but I was close. Look, I was really close. No, he tells it like it is. A blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. And people are shocked by that, and you think, that's Paul. That's not the accusers of Paul. This is not people who didn't like Paul writing about Paul. This is Paul talking about Paul. And he's able to say, uh, yeah, I was a blasphemer. That's worthy of death. Persecutor, insolent opponent. I was arrogant, insolent. I opposed the Christian message. But, thank God for the buts in our Bible. But I received mercy because I'd acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know what I didn't know. And the grace, notice that, mercy emphasized, grace emphasized. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that, are is, that is in Christ Jesus. That's what the true gospel will allow you to do. Look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know what? You are as bad as the devil says you are. Now look away to Christ who ransoms sinners. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save people that are almost making it. Is that what your Bible says? No. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Not try to save them, but actually save them. Of whom? Look at this. I am the foremost. All right. Get a list of all the sinners out there, the worst ones on planet earth, that have ever lived, and Paul says, I'm head of the list. The gospel allows you to do that. Now, he says, I am the foremost, and scholars wrangle over this. Was he just being humble? No, they realized he actually believed this. Paul believed he was the worst sinner. I can get that because regarding myself, I live with me. And I think, People don't understand, but I just had a thought like that. Whoa, where did that come from? And I'm looking righteous on the outside. I remember being in a bank and there was this elderly lady in front of me. She was waiting to be served and the thought came to me, just because there was three or four in front of her, just push her and see what happens. Will it be like a domino thing? And they all fall down and people like, you're a pastor and you thought that? Yeah, I didn't act on it, thank the Lord, but... But thoughts come to us all. You think, I'm shocked. I'm shocked that you're shocked. 
pastor. I know, Christian. <laughs> but thoughts come to us. Martin Luther said, we are not in control of the birds flying over our head, but we are responsible when the bird lands in our hair and builds a nest. And so thoughts assail us. It's what we do after the thoughts come that causes us to either flee temptation or give in to it. And my suggestion is don't let the bird build a nest in your head. Flee temptation. That's what I did. And that's why I'm not in jail today. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Who was the, you know, who started this domino thing in the back? Uh, Pastor John. Oh. I wouldn't want that. I remember driving and someone cut me off and, you know, we think, I'm just this humble guy. I think I was listening to praise music in the car. To God be the glory. And someone cut me off and the sense of the holiness and majesty of God left me and I wanted to get out of the car till I realized this is Arizona, he could have a gun. I wanted to challenge him and said, don't you know you are not the center of the universe? I wanted to give him a Bible lesson. Thoughts come to us all. So what do we do? We act on what is righteous, but that act does not give us right standing with God. Jesus and his acts for us do. A right view of the cross allows us to see sin as hideous, treasonous, and find relief in the balm of Gilead in Christ alone. Paul could face the reality of his sin, call himself the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners, as one translation reads. Amazing words. Amazing words. He saw himself that way, the worst of sinners. He called himself out for what he truly was, a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent uh, opponent, but I received mercy, grace overflowed for me. I want to ask you, can you do the same? The gospel allows us to look at our own sin full in the face and then look to the Savior who forgives our sin by the means of his death for us in our place. Was he the foremost sinner? I'm not sure. But here's what I'm convinced of. Paul thought he was. And that did not stop him embracing and rejoicing and delighting in the gospel. That's what the gospel is. You see, if we undercoat our sin, we undercoat the Savior. He saves wretches. And I qualify. Because it's not boring grace, but amazing grace, we can then say, he saved a wretch like me. Some churches are so offended by that, they change their hymnals so that it doesn't say wretch. A person, sounds very English. He saved a person like me. No, he, he was right. Wretch. Paul saw himself as the greatest sinner and, that's not the end of the sentence, and because of the gospel, that's okay. And that's why Jesus Christ gets all the glory for our salvation. All of it. It's a healthy thing to see yourself as a great sinner. Oh, you don't want to talk about guilt. That's the word you'd never say from the pulpit. You don't want people to be guilty. I know that's what the culture says. But you know what? We genuinely are guilty and should feel guilty. And that should cause us to run to the Savior who removes our guilt. He really does remove real guilt because he's a real Savior. It's a healthy thing to see yourself as a great sinner even the greatest of sinners. I think that about myself. I think, you might think you're bad. I think I'm worse. I think that's the work of the Holy Spirit to make us see, wow, he really did something when he saved me. There have been times I've been shocked at what's in my head. I've just given you instances of it. I've been shocked, that was in me? You took me on with all that in me? Don't look at me in that tone of voice. You felt... He felt the same way about you. 
He took me on knowing that was in me. Yep, because you're a grace project. The opposite is the message of self-esteem. I'm sure you've heard it. You are really worth something. Jesus proved your worth by going to the cross for you. Do you know that's satanic doctrine? That's a twisting. That would make grace, which is stupendous, scandalous grace, just a good business proposition for God. Now think about that. If you're, worth, if you're worth $10 trillion and he paid $10 trillion to save you, that's just a good business proposition. Yeah, you're worth it. Here's the scandal of grace. Jesus paid a debt to redeem us that was so scandalous, none of the angels can ever make sense of it. Wow, he did what? He was born of a virgin to save you. He never did that for us angels. He lived a sinless life for you. Never did that for us. He died on the cross for you. He rose from the, from the dead for you. He's now at the place of all authority in heaven and earth for you. And he's reigning and interceding for you. Scandalous grace. That's why forever we'll not be saying, God, you're really wise with your business dealings. No, the songs of the redeemed are worthy as the lamb who was slain. He redeemed us by his, his, his blood. Such is his love for us. Let me read Ezekiel 20 verses 43 and 44 just to highlight a point I'm making. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds which with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evil that you have committed, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake, not according to your evil ways, nor according to your corrupt deeds. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God's work amongst his people is to bring us to the place where we loathe ourselves, but that's not where we stop. We find that God acts for his name's sake and saves us by his power alone and he gets all the glory. Salvation is of the Lord. Face the sin, receive his mercy for his name's sake. John Newton, who is the man who gave us that hymn, Amazing Grace, at the end of his life said these famous words, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. The gospel allows you to do both. It's not that he saves you when you consider your sin wasn't that bad. No, it's worse than I thought. There were multiple layers of sin. And people only saw the sin on the outside, but more was raging in my heart. And he saved me. What glory goes to God for my salvation? The gospel allows you to say both things. I'm a great sinner. He's a great saviour. And it's freeing. It's freeing. Oh, the freedom of this. Do you remember in Galatians 5? Stand fast in the freedom, the liberty, whereby Christ has made you free. And do not be enslaved again by a yoke of bondage. Luther helps us in this with the Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator. You can't be about four or five months around here without hearing that Latin phrase. It's so helpful. Simul, we have the English word simultaneous. It means at the same time. Simul, justus, that means righteous or just. Et, which means and, and peccator, which means sinner. Understanding the phrase, simul, justus, et peccator, it means this. At the same time, just and sinner. Religion can't grasp this, but someone who grasps the, the grace of God can. At the very same time, in and of myself, I'm a sinner. God gives me righteousness as a gift. And without me performing any works, any actions, His, Christ, righteousness is given to me. So in and of myself, I am a sinner. And at the same moment, calling out to God, I'm righteous with the righteousness of Christ. I'm a great sinner with a great Savior. I'm righteous because of Christ. 
Jesus didn't die for you because of your worth. No, a thousand times. No, he paid a scandalous price for wretches like you and me. Treasonous rebels to the throne. Grace is a scandal, not merely a good business proposition. Heaven will not be a hallway of mirrors, one, one, one man said. I'm so looking forward to heaven because I'll see myself in all my pristine glory. You know that's wrong. But voicing it allows you to face that. Wow, have I embraced a self-esteem message? I'm not that bad. And that's the message. You're not that bad and God is really pleased that you've turned out as well as you have. And just tweak a few things. Just tweak a few things. Put these five things to work and you'll see this in your life. You'll see that in your life. You'll confess this and you'll get better parking spaces at the mall. Just tweak, make some minor adjustments, but God's really happy with you. Really? Just read your Bible. I think someone who preaches that have never read the Bible. It doesn't matter which book of the Bible. What is that? It's a total failure to see the cross. What is it? Above, over, all of that is, is the power of witchcraft. And it's affected and infected much of the professing church. It won't be all about you there. It's not all about you here. And guilt is a good thing if it drives you to the Savior. Back to Hebrews. Praise the Lord. That's the introduction. And now read verse 12. We're on sacred ground here. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Child of God, cherish those words. Mercy. Mercy. Merciful toward their iniquities, not just to their bad habits where they kind of got there but didn't quite. I'll show them a bit of mercy. No. He's merciful to our rebellion. He's merciful for, to us when we are those who have committed treasonous acts of defiance. The king's in his castle and we've tried to bomb him and the castle. I'll be merciful toward their iniquities. I'll remember their sins no more. I thought God knows everything. He does, but he's saying I'll not recall it to mind. You'll never hear it in my presence. Some of you heard the story when I first preached in the United States. I preached in a place in New Jersey and I was given 10 minutes by my mentor to preach and he was to follow on. And I was so enamored by the American audience who were responding with, well, yeah, or well, and none of that had ever happened in England. And they were responding and so I lost all track of time and instead of taking 10 minutes, I took 17. And I didn't realize I'd taken 17. People were responding and I was loving it. And Harry Greenwood, the man who was my mentor, took over and he didn't say anything in the service. But afterwards he said, John, do you know how long you took? I said, no. He said, well, I do. It was 17 minutes. And to this day, I have great regret over that. But uh, I'm doing penance and I'll get that. No, no. I said, I am truly sorry. I you don't even have to give me 10 minutes. This is your service. They invited you. It's a privilege to have 10 minutes to preach, and I'm very sorry. He could see I was very sorry. To this day, I'm still very sorry. Never happened again. I took a, a clock with me. He said this to me, John, I forgive you, and I'll never bring it up again. To this day, it's one of the greatest lessons I ever learned about forgiveness. It's not that he didn't know about it and three weeks later he couldn't remember it. He wouldn't ever bring it up again. That's what's going on in this verse. Do you know in heaven, get this, God won't bring up your sins in his presence if you're a Christian. That's amazing. 
There will be rewards for righteousness, the things we've done after we've come to Christ. That's true. But do you see these words? I will remember their sins no more. And remember, everyone in the new covenant gets this benefit. Some of you, I want to relieve the burden on your heads and on your shoulders. You're, you, I remember a pastor telling me of a lady who had done a big sin. She committed adultery. And she came to the pastor after nine years and said, for every day I've lived since that time, I've confessed that sin over and over and over and over and over again, and I can't get forgiveness. And the pastor just took him to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which is a Bible verse that says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And he walked her through that passage and its meaning, and he said, I know you've been talking to God about this for nine years, but for nine years... Honestly, he doesn't know what you're talking about. He forgave you. Christian, you need the gospel, just like those outside the faith need the gospel. Can you hear it? Can you now see the cross? The cross is enough. The cross satisfied justice, not just for those outside the faith, but inside the walls of the church. That's not to excuse sin. It's to say, Sin is real sin, and it was bad. But Jesus is a real savior, and he's good at it. He saves really well. Let me recommend him to you. The cross was enough. The cross was enough before you were saved. The cross is enough now. Let's turn to Romans 5 as we wrap this up. The cross is enough. The cross is enough. Romans 5, verse 6 for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice that. Not people who were almost getting there, but wretches, ungodly people. Christ died for sinners. He died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die, this is Romans 5 verse 7, for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We get that. But let's continue reading. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more, how much more, how much more, how much more? Have you got the how much more? Yes, he saves sinners. Come to him, adulterers and blasphemers and persecutors of the church. Come to Jesus Christ. Once you're in the kingdom, now you've got to watch it. You're on probation. At any moment he can throw you out. That's not the gospel. The gospel is he saves completely those who come to God by him. Amen. How much more? Once you came and you were a sinner, but how much more now you've been justified by his blood? How much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, past tense, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? The same cross that saved the sinner saves the Christian, who's also a sinner. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The gospel is good news for sinners. The cross is for lost people and for saved people. And the gospel is for failing Christians. Let me close with a quote from Rod Rosenblatt from that same article I mentioned earlier. When the major stress in pulpit and curriculum shifts from Christ outside of me dying for me to Christ inside of me improving me, the upshot is always the same. Many broken, sad ex-Christians who despair of being able to live the Christian life as the Bible describes it. So they do what is really a sane thing to do, they leave. The way it looks to them is that the message of Christianity has broken them on the rack. To put it bluntly, it feels better to have some earthly happiness as a pagan and then be damned 
than it feels to be trying every day as a Christian to do something that is one continuous failure and then be damned anyway. The key question here is a very basic one. Can the cross and blood of Christ save a Christian, failing as he is in living the Christian life, or not? Most of us would say, I hope that the shed blood of Christ is sufficient to save a sinner all by itself. So far, so good. But is the blood of Christ enough all by itself to save a still sinful Christian? Or isn't it? Is what Luther said about the Christian being simul justus et peccator biblical or not? Can Christ's righteousness imputed save a still sinful Christian? And can it save him all by itself or not? I think the way we answer this question determines whether we have anything at all to say to the sad alumni of Christianity. Has the Lord done its killing work on these sad ones? Rosenblatt adds, boy has it ever. They need more of the law like they need a hole in the head. For them, the gospel often got lost in a whole bunch of Christian life preaching, and it did them in, so they left. And down deep, there's a sadness in such people that describes description. Final paragraph. C.F.W. Walther said that as soon as the law has done its crushing work, the gospel is to be instantly preached or said to such a man or woman what the sad alumni need to hear, perhaps for the first time, is that Christian failures are going to walk into heaven, be welcomed into heaven, leap into heaven like a calf leaping out of its stall, laughing and laughing as if it's all too good to be true. It isn't just that we failures get in. It's that we get in like that. You mean, it was Jesus' death for me, that's why I'm here. But of course, that's the point, isn't it? As a believer in Jesus, you won't be condemned. No believer in Jesus will be. Not a single one. Romans 8.1 there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 12. Hebrews 8, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel for failing Christians. Write it on our hearts now and forever so that we give all glory to God for our salvation and sing, worthy is the Lamb. Not how good was my performance. Let's let go of that but now and forever. Christ, Christ, Christ alone is the Savior. Christ alone saves. Free us from all false religion and free us from the power of witchcraft that we might see the blazing glory of the cross again. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.